This is Jason Albert, and you are listening to Nordic Nation from Faster Skier. Watch those wagons come rolling in, dressed to the hill, though the sun sinks low. The spirits rise on this happy hill, well I'm sorry. Okay, that music clip up front is from today's guest, U.S. biathlete, recent world champion, and clearly a gifted musician, Lowell Bailey. The song is titled Songs of Horicon, and it's the title track of Bailey's 2005 solo album, Songs of Logging. And that music was just a small teaser. We'll play the song in its entirety at the conclusion of the interview. We sat down with Bailey at his Airbnb here in Bend on May 16th. The U.S. Bathalon team was in town for an on-snow camp up at Mount Bachelor. Bailey is a biathlon lifer. Raised in Lake Placid, New York, he's been racing on the World Cup since 2002. That dates him. He's 35 years old and skiing fast and shooting sharp. He won the 20K individual race at the 2017 World Biathlon Championships, and he's a husband and a dad. He plans on racing one more season through the 2018 Winter Games and then moving on with the family to Bozeman, Montana. Okay, on to the interview. Can I get you to introduce yourself and you know who you are? Basic rundown. Yep. Hi, this is Lowell Bailey. I'm uh, a member of the U.S. Biathlon team. Happy to be here. Okay, so what are you guys up to here in Baton this week? We are here with the U.S. national team. It's our first training camp of the year. Although we started um, our training plan several weeks ago, this is the first time that we've uh, met with all of the coaches and staff and athletes uh, in one place for an official training camp. What type of training are you folks doing? So this time of year, we're focused predominantly on base training. So most of our training will be in the level one, two zone. So for all you athletes out there, that's uh, lactate millimole levels of one or below. So we'll be focused on base training, which means quite a bit of hours uh, at lower intensities. And most of those hours will be on snow, which is really uh, the biggest reason to come to Bend in May. Um, there's some exceptional conditions up at uh, Bachelor Nordic Center. So we've been up there almost every day since we've been here. I noticed that this year, usually they, or at least in the past couple of years, they've set up a biathlon range for you guys or just a basic shooting range. No mm-hmm. shooting this year. Was that a scheduling thing or just a by design thing? Uh, it was by design. I think we, uh, over the past couple of years, have realized that at this point in the season, we can get the highest quality of work done by focusing on skiing when we're here in Bend. And we did uh, a small shooting camp just before we came out here. So we did quite a bit of shooting in early May. And then uh, once we're finished here, we'll go back to Lake Placid and uh, pick up the rifle again. And this time of year, it's a great chance to really focus on changing your ski technique and making the adjustments that you will work on going forward throughout the training season. So how old are you? I am 35. What does that say about, you know, if things have changed since you were first in the sport, you know, you have guys that are mid thirties excelling. Yeah, I think there's a lot of reasons for that. I don't, I don't think there's any one uh, reason per se, but I can say that in the U.S. over my career, I've witnessed U.S. biathlon and U.S. biathletes 
given the opportunity to um, pursue biathlon into their late 20s and mid 30s, which is which is to say that we now have a system in the United States where if you are at a World Cup level, there's support, there's funding. Um, our uh, administration, our association, they understand that it takes a long time to reach your peak in the sport of biathlon. So I think we've changed a little bit how we think about the sport and how we think about developing athletes in the United States. And I think we have, you know, it's, it's not to say that everything's a perfect system, but I think we're well on our way and we've made a lot of improvements over the last decade. According to the IBU site, this is all I have to qualify that. So you started your World Cup career, I believe, in 2002? Uh, yeah, 2002, first World Cup. How is that elite environment back then kind of different now? The World Cup tour has gone through some changes. Um, it's, it's evolved since 2002. And I think the biggest change is its profile outside of Germany. I think it's been a big sport in Germany for going back into the early 90s. But from 2002 onward, I've witnessed sort of the rest of the world. And I'll, I guess I should qualify that as the rest of um, Europe, Russia, Scandinavia. Those places have sort of caught up with, with the popularity of biathlon. So now um, when you when I visit places like Norway, like, you know, a place like the Czech Republic, where previously biathlon was a fairly high profile sport, but by no means the most popular sport. When you go to the Czech Republic now uh, for a World Cup, it's one of, if not the most popular sport. I believe they're um, the sort of athlete of the year award for the entire country among all sports went to a biathlete. So that's just a, an indicator of, of how big the sport has become. And I've also seen, I have to say, uh, although it's much smaller in North America, the really since the advent of online streaming broadcasts, I've seen the popularity of biathlon go up quite a bit in the United States and North America as well. It sounds like, well, that sounds like, yeah. You missed by a fraction the Salt Lake Games in 2002. Mm -hmm. And you ended up going to UVM, if I have that right. Yep, that's correct. I've checked out your dossier. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And that's always something on the cross-country side of things. You know, the people have gone back and forth. Yeah, the kids should stick in school. The kids should leave school. Mm -hmm. Thinking about how that all played out for you, one, why did you decide that back then? And is it a something that you would do again yeah i've i've been asked this question uh quite a lot actually and you know after thinking about it i think that it's really an individual decision i think there are some athletes out there where choosing to go to college may not be the right decision and i think um there's other athletes where that absolutely is the right decision and i would fall into the latter category. So to answer your previous question, yes, if I, if I had to do things over again, I would definitely go back, you know, go to school and, and complete my degree. You know, I can only really speak about biathlon because I, you know, that's the sport that I've pursued, but I can say that in biathlon, it's a sport that requires obviously a high level of skiing. 
and a high proficiency in uh, shooting. But I have seen, or I should say it's not uncommon to see skiers pick up the shooting aspect later in life, as in, you know, early 20s later in life. I think if you're 30 years old and thinking about picking a biathlon, it's probably too late. But um, I think if you've just gotten out of college and had a successful Nordic racing career in college or on the North American circuit, it's absolutely a doable thing to to try and pursue biathlon at that point. It's not to say it's easy to to just... I, I don't want to make it sound like you can just pick up a rifle and be knocking down targets in six months. It's definitely, There's definitely a, a learning curve. and But when you compare it to how long it takes to become a world-class cross-country skier, I think the the shooting development curve is, is, is much steeper. And we'll obviously get to your hardware at some point. Sure. Sooner rather than later. <laughs> but, um, you know, having achieved that goal, and what, 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 if you can just mention, what did you win? Uh, this past season, I won the world championship individual race in uh, Hopefields in Austria. You know, how is the start of this season different mentally for you than in seasons past having, you know, I'm, I'm not sure you have that on your goal sheet, but right. it's certainly probably hardware was a goal or an objective in the long term. Yeah. And I, you know, I think, again, I've been asked various iterations of the same question a lot. To say, that's and amazing. yeah, <laughs> yeah. And it, it, no, it's a great question. Yeah. And I think it's a really interesting part of the sport. I think it deals um, for me in particular uh, in the sports psychology realm so by that I mean that you know athletes in any sport really um, one of the sort of fundamental aspects of of sport is or being an athlete is um, setting goals and working towards those goals and um, that's the way I've approached my career ever since I was five years old so but the interesting thing about goals is you set this sort of fixed outcome and it starts to get interesting when that fixed outcome is contingent on you performing at your absolute best and really giving a perfect performance. You know, I could, I could talk all day about the the psychology behind what it takes to achieve a, you know, a perfect performance. But generally speaking, I think that you as an athlete, you can you can almost shoot yourself in the foot by setting a goal and making that goal the only thing that matters because it can actually get in the way or distract you from focusing on the actual things you need to do. So by that, I mean specifically skiing fast and shooting well. So to give you sort of a real world example, I've had several races uh, where, you know, you're so concerned with the outcome and the result that you don't let yourself focus 100% on whether it's the shooting or skiing, you know, one one of those or both of those. And as a result, you fall short of your goal. So it's sort of this uh, <laughs> paradox that athletes have to sort of negotiate. So getting back to your previous question about this season and what the approach is and what has changed, I think maybe the only change is I have a greater confidence 
in knowing that where I need to focus my energy is on the execution of the various different skills that you need to do on a daily basis. You need to ski fast. You need to ski with good technique. You need to shoot well. You need to shoot quickly, accurately. Those are very, you know, you're, you're not focusing on the outcome. You're focusing on the process. And so over the last four or five years, I've worked really hard to back away from those outcome-oriented uh, thoughts and really try to focus as much as possible. And I say as much as possible because there's a myriad of distractions that arise on any given day and they can be external, they can be internal. But um, the key I've found is finding ways to, in light of all those distractions, get back to focusing on what really matters, which is how do I ski fast? How do I negotiate this course on this day in these conditions? What's going on in the shooting range? How do I manage those conditions and really trying to get away from thinking those sort of outcome oriented thoughts of how's this race going to go? Where am I going to end up on the results sheet? Boy, I hope I can have a good result today. That type of thinking. Um, it's, it's sort of counterintuitive to, to, to think about, but it, it, it's actually, if your goal is to have the highest result possible, you almost need to write that goal down and then forget about it. <laughs> During competition season, and maybe specifically at World Champs, you know, obviously, you, you were so close. I think you came in fourth. I remember mm-hmm. watching that race. And <laughs> it was like, I'm sure there, you, every, all of your fans and family had a collective, although the result is a standalone amazing. I'm yeah. sure you've been in the game a long time. It's like, oh. Yeah, um, yeah, Absolutely. I'm curious, how often are you on the phone with or Skyping a sports psychologist to center you in terms of those, you know, what the intangibles might be Mm -hmm. or the tangibles? Yeah, I think uh, uh, I've worked for, you know, the last, it's probably been five or six years um, with the same sports psychologist. And I won't, I won't call him out on the broadcast, but he's been extremely uh, influential in helping me find an approach that works for me. And I think uh, in working with him, I've realized also that every athlete is is totally different. And so, you know, when people ask, what's the secret to success or what's, you know, in biathlon, what's the, how, how did you do it? Or there's, there's no uh, miracle answer. I mean, everyone is going to have a different answer. Every athlete's going to have a, their own style and their own route to success. And I think all of those answers would probably have an element of hard work and all of the sort of fundamental aspects that go into success. But the nuances that are unique to each athlete, they're just that. They're, they're unique to that athlete. And a good sports psychologist is capable of, in a sense, reading the athlete and, and guiding them to find you know, the, the path that's right for them. Uh, and I, I feel like... I've been very fortunate to work with uh, someone who understands that and isn't forcing a, this is sports psychology 101 and this is how it's done and here's the sort of um, linear path that you need to take step by step. And it, it's been a much more holistic endeavor for, for my part, I guess. And are you someone uh, at this point who, after, say, the fourth place, 
you, sorry that you're fun you get where you clearly were in a good spot physically and mentally that you can just say to yourself okay i there's nothing i need to modify in the next 24 hours or 48 hours i'm there or do you still need to have an external voice kind of just walk you through a, a check list right. or something yeah um i i would say that the reason that we train and the reason that we start training in April for a race that doesn't occur for another 10 months is because you're in a sense rehearsing everything. So you're rehearsing the sort of, um, the biomechanics and the muscle memory involved in both skiing and shooting. And the more you rehearse as with anything, the, the more fluid, the more automatic those actions become. So, you know, the goal is to arrive at the big race, whether it's world championships or the Olympics with all that work done so that you can focus. You don't have to be worrying about the sort of fundamental aspects of, for instance, am I in shape? Is my ski technique where I want it to be? Is my shooting approach where I want it to be? All of that should be done, you know, well before the season starts. But on that given day, Every day has its differences in conditions. It might be windier. It might be calmer. The snow might be slower. It might be faster. The course might be, there might be more transitions. There might be less transitions. There's tons of things that happen that are unique to that given day that you have to tactically think about. And I think that that really sort of, in my ideal sort of uh, vision of what a, what a race day should should be is that all of the fundamental aspects are already taken care of because you're as prepared as you can possibly be because you've started training in April and you've followed through with all of the periodization required in a, in a quality training plan. So all of that work is done and you're left with the only things you're left to focus on are negotiating the conditions of that day. After your victory, um, has there been an easier path for you in terms of like, okay, sponsors or things like that. I would say the jury's out on, (laughs) on that. Um, I, you know, to date, I would say it hasn't been any easier to obtain sponsors. I think it's difficult as a North American biathlete to obtain sponsorship and funding. And it's something that I've known for a long time, but I think we have some distinct advantages uh, as North Americans in biathlon. I'll say this. It's much easier if you're a German biathlete, you have a leg up on the competition in, in terms of sponsorship and personal, how, how you fund your career. If you can describe the race that you won, and in particular, um, you know, for people who you know, aren't familiar with biathlon, what makes it a special race? And, and, then, and maybe this is crude. Right. But, I would, but I would equate it to perhaps like the 50K at the Olympics or world champs in terms of its prestige. Mm-hmm. You know, describe to listeners what you won at yep. world champs and what makes it so unique. The race that I won is the 20K individual uh, competition. The individual competition is one of the oldest disciplines in biathlon. Um, as I said before, the this, this sport has gone through you know, an an evolution over the last decade, two decades. Part of that has been um, the introduction of a lot of other uh, disciplines like the mass start, uh, the pursuit race. 
and these are races that are now hugely popular, but, um, you know, when biathlon started, it was originally, it was for a long time, an individual race, a sprint race and a relay race. And so the individual race has been around for a while. It's a 20 kilometer race, so it's the longest discipline. It's four shooting stages. And one of the unique aspects of the individual is that instead of doing a 150 meter penalty loop for every target missed, you get penalized one minute on your finish time. So I think a lot of people would argue that it's, um, it's a race where shooting matters a little bit more than some of the other disciplines. And I guess I would agree with that. Although the fact that it's the longest race we do sort of counterbalances that aspect. The individual races, it's, yeah, it's one of the most challenging of the disciplines. It wears you down throughout the race because of the length. You're shooting at the end of the race, um, your last standing shooting, you've, you've already raced 16 kilometers. So you're incredibly tired and fatigued. And with shooting, both physical and mental fatigue play their course. And it's, I think, one of the toughest things to do uh, in, in the sport of biathlon is to clean your last stage. And especially in an individual, it can be, it can be extremely challenging to hit targets in that last stage. So to sort of set the scene, so you were you came into that last shooting stage, you had shot clean. It's mm-hmm. a minute penalty. So I am guessing if you have one miss on that last shooting round, you're you're done. Yeah, yeah. You know the margin of victory is oftentimes a second or two, and in this case, in this race, it was three point three seconds. So over a, a race that takes place over nearly an hour. 3.3 seconds is not a lot of time. Uh, and when you compare that tiny margin to one minute for every miss, that starts to sound like a, a large penalty, which it is. So, you know, if you if you miss one target in that last stage, all of a sudden you're effectively a minute back from where you were a split second before. So that's part of the psychology of biathlon. And it's, it's also what makes the sport so dramatic because, you know, every fan watching either in the stadium or, you know, tens of millions of people tuning in on their uh, TV screens, they know that it all comes down to this crucial last stage. And if you've hit four of four, it comes down to that crucial last shot, which a lot of biathletes will tell you the hardest the hardest target to hit in biathlon is the last target. And I think that's absolutely true because if you've gone through a race and hit 19 of 19, you have to remain calm and mentally focused uh, when everything in your body and mind is telling you to focus on the fact that, oh my God, if I hit this last target, if I do this, then success is right around the corner. And so you really have to try to remove yourself from those thoughts and just focus on what you need to do. Because at the end of the day, hitting a biathlon target is the same, you know, the targets don't get smaller as the race goes on, although sometimes it seems that way. You came in, I believe, with a 10-second lead into that last shooting round. Is that about right? I don't know what my, uh, what the, the splits were it's a little bit hard to tell um, at that point, but I can say that uh, I left 
I left the range, I think, with around a six-second six gap to second place. Two questions here. One is, you know, some biathletes visibly, you know, when they hit that last target, there is like a little expletive yeah. sort of, you know, going off in their brain or right. something. Right. Uh, was there anything like that for you or were you just like kind of black out a little bit? I think um, if if I go back to that moment in time, there was sort of an immediate, uh, once I hit the last shot and saw the target go down, there was an immediate like understanding of the gravity of the situation and sort of the, the that sort of sense of urgency where I'm all of a sudden under the realization that all that's left between me and a world championship is four kilometers and I have four kilometers to go in a race that's, you know, I've completed all of the shooting. I've completed most of the race and it's, it's just this four kilometers between me and a world championship victory. And I think that, that was present in my mind as I exited the, the shooting range. And especially when I, when I rounded the corner of the first split there and, and heard that was the first time I heard that I was winning the race. And because of my bib number that day, I knew that pretty much meant that if I could hold on to my lead, I would win. So that was the initial, that initial hit of like, holy cow, this is, this is the most important four kilometers that I'm facing of my entire life. You know, I was, that was a heavy, heavy moment. And I tried to manage that moment as I left the shooting range by sort of psyching myself up, I would say psyching myself out of going down the road of, Oh my God, I can't mess up now. I can't, you know, and really trying to, understand yes this is an important situation but what do i need to focus on right now i need to focus on skiing fast what do i need to do to ski fast i need to just keep you know keep going no matter how hard it hurts of all the times in my life that i've felt pain on a race course this is the one to really push it and fortunately i had you know i had staff members every it felt like every 100 meters but i'm you know every 2 300 meters there was a a, a U.S. biathlon staff member there, and it was just a surreal uh, experience hearing all of their cheers on top of the forty thousand people in the stands who immediately knew that here this guy from the United States was in the lead, and all of a sudden, all of those German, Austrian, um, European fans turned their attention towards me and were actually cheering me on because I was one of the last starters. So they knew as I did that if I could hang on to my lead, that I would be the world champion. So it was this crazy, um, surreal experience for that, you know, four kilometer loop. But it was also, I think, extremely helpful for me to have that sort of positive encouragement the whole way. And it, you know, my, my lead, it, it, uh, increased and decreased throughout the throughout the loop but 
it was never, uh, I think the dramatic thing about it in looking back on it was that no one was sure until I crossed the finish line. There was at no point on the loop was I surely going to lose, but at no point on the loop was I surely going to win. And it just, just when it seemed like I was going to lose the lead, then I would have a good section. And just when it seemed like I was going to, you know, pad my lead, I would lose seconds. So at one point I was at, I was dead even towards the, the end of the loop. I think one of the pivotal moments for me was on the second to last climb, the largest climb of the course at the very top, my wife, Erica and our daughter, Ophelia, our infant daughter, <laughs> Ophelia, who was nine months at the time. She had Ophelia on her chest and was just running beside me as I crested the hill. Uh, and I could just hear her saying, yelling, you're winning, you're winning, you're winning. And um, I think there's certain things you'll just always remember in your life. And that was definitely a moment that I'll always remember. And I think from that point on, I had maybe 800 meters left of the race course and I knew it was close and I, and I knew all of those things that, you know, um, in, when you're in that position, but I think having that extra encouragement was, I guess I'll say this, that if you win a race by 30 seconds, you can sort of pat yourself on the back and say, great job. I did it. Um, but if you win a race by 3.3 seconds, you have a lot of people to thank and you can look at any aspect of your training. You can look at your skis. You can look at the stone grind. You can look at the, if you're just, just talking about ski wax, you can look at the cover. You can look at the base. You can look at structure, all of those things, sports psychology, the, the type of ammo you were using, the, the barrel you were using, you know, there's literally hundreds if not thousands of parameters involved that could account for that 3.3 second margin so having my having erica's encouragement having my team's encouragement knowing that we have some of the most passionate and expert wax technicians hardest working for sure you know it, it, it's just you really have to look at that race and that result as a team result, even though it was an individual result, because there's no way I could have done it without all of those things coming together, all of those different aspects being perfect on that day. And, and everything did come together. It's interesting. So I think I'm sure I knew the result, but it was funny watching it. You know, I think my son and I were watching. I was still stressed. I yeah. was like, "Oh, he, oh, yeah. you know, he yeah. still might not do it, even though it was a replay." <laughs> I've, yeah, I've only, um, I've only watched it once, actually. Why is that? Um, because it's too, it's just too emotional for me. I mean, it's, it's. I, I guess I don't really know why. It's just the I have the version of it that I lived, and I don't want to change that because it was such a it's such a great version in my own mind that I don't really want to I don't have any need to alter it that makes, that makes <laughs> sense actually <laughs> you grew up in Lake Placid I think you still reside in Lake Placid I think your wife is from Montana 
She's from Lake Placid, actually. Oh, she is? Yep. Yep. She spent sure. seven years in Montana. Okay. Yep. I'm not sure where I got, like, are her parents bison farmers? Uh, Yes. Yeah. In Lake Placid? In Lake Placid. Yeah. <laughs> Surprisingly, right? <laughs> yeah. Wow. How do they do in Lake Placid? Um, they've uh, switched to grass-fed cattle okay. at the moment. Um, they did have a herd of just over 100 bison. Yeah. Um, they have a beautiful farm just outside of Lake Placid, and I think any bison or cow is fortunate when they yeah. end up there. <laughs> um, yeah, they, they had a great experience raising bison in the Adirondacks of northern New York. I think part of that reason was that there aren't a lot of bison farms in that region, so it was a relatively easy product to, to sell. But it turns out it's also very difficult to process bison because they're classified as a exotic species, which makes the um, the processing aspect a much uh, more involved scenario than just with beef. So I know you'll be running uh, an, uh, a bathlon program in, mm-hmm. in Bozeman, but you also you will be dabbling with bison. Um. So yeah. So there's there's been some. Uh, <laughs> Sorry. Maybe not confusion, but uh, maybe this is a chance for me to clarify my life. <laughs> um, uh, Erica and I were planning on uh, taking over her parents' bison and then uh, cattle operation. And what that was roughly two years ago. And, and what happened at the time, at the time, I was planning on retiring from sport. Uh, we were going to launch this new business. Um, we had a you know business plan financing everything set up to go and uh, the good people from crosscut mountain sports center in bozeman montana gave us a call and asked if we would become involved in their project and you know it's as a biathlete i would say your skill set is is uh is limited when you look at uh, the american job market you know there's not a lot of openings for professional biathletes so I think that a lot of biathletes have gone on to do creative, impressive things. And it's, it's always interesting for me to see one of my teammates retire and to see what they en- eventually end up doing because they always end up, you know, in really interesting professional careers and usually very successful. So for my part, I basically having no farming background or experience realized that I had a an interest in raising bison and cattle and i found it interesting every time i worked with uh, erica's parents and so we just decided that that was we're just gonna jump in with both feet and go for it in a sense that's what we ended up doing but we just ended up doing that with crosscut mountain sports center what happened is we decided to put our business plans on hold we decided to go out to bozeman and see what all the fuss was about and what we found was that here is an incredibly passionate group of people, a very receptive community, a community that's focused on outdoor recreation, on youth development, on kids getting out from behind their iPad screens and getting outdoors and having outdoor experience, whether that's biathlon or a hike in the woods or you know any number of uh, outdoor pursuits. So we land in Bozeman and basically find all of this there. And we decided what a great place 
and what a great group of people to become involved with and throw our collective energy behind. And so that's what CrossCut is about and that's what we're trying to do. And we're currently fundraising to acquire the property that will eventually be where the venue sits and Crosscut Mountain Sports Center will be a place where, you know, with a focus on biathlon, but our main goal is to provide an asset to the community, a place where a bunch of different user groups, you know, whether that's ultra runners or the family that is just visiting that wants to introduce their kids to cross-country skiing, Paralympians, Paralympic athletes, they've already started training on that land. And so it's, it's about inclusivity. It's about bringing a whole community and the region together in a place that's, if you've ever been to Bridger Canyon, it's one of the most beautiful places on earth. And that's what we're all about. And, and we're moving full speed ahead simultaneously with, uh, with the Pyeongchang Olympic track as well. So life is, life is busy these days. <laughs> well, thanks for your time. Really appreciate it. Yeah. Thanks. My pleasure. Thanks for listening to Nordic Nation. And here's Bailey's tune, Songs of Horican.
on the shores of Oricon. I ask you, friends, or do we send these men alone? Well, a single stick, a wind struck, will splinter down its length, but many more. And together they have an oxen strain. Now I go to the council fire to shout and dance on the forest floor. These Mohawk men are my dearest friends. In this war we fight at the eastern door. The smoky sun has set at last on a dismal scene. A chaos formed in cannon blast. These mountains call for the echo with a warrior's cry. My friend is gone. The bravest Mohawk chief has died. Now I go to the mountainside to shout and dance round the forest floor. These Mohawk men. Are my dearest friends in this war 